end of this chapter from verses 29 through 40 this morning as we continue on our, our journey of faith. I'd like to read this for us as we begin. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 29. By faith, the people, and he's talking about the people of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these heroes of the faith who have gone before us and the amazing things that you did in their life because they trusted in you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in our faith, to be men and women of courage, of boldness, who take risks for the kingdom of God, who trust you in times of difficulty and trials, and who glorify you by having that kind of trustworthy faith. So Father, teach us today. Help us to understand your word and again to see how it applies to the things that are going on in our life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are going to finish our study in faith in Hebrews 11. And when I read through this chapter, uh, you know, what I imagine in my mind is the writer of Scripture sitting down and he's taking his Bible or more literally he's, you know, unrolling his scroll and he's looking at these stories and these men and women of faith starting with Genesis chapter 1. And he kind of unrolls the scroll and he looks at these different individuals and he thinks, well, I can tell you about Abel and his sacrifice. I could tell you about Enoch, who walked with God and was taken, who did not die, but went, went up to heaven. I could tell you about Noah and his construction of the ark and trusting God when he was working on this project for about a hundred years while people were wondering, what is he doing? I could tell you about Abraham, who left his country and his homeland to go to a land he didn't even know, or about Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson. And the writer of Scripture still finds himself in Genesis after telling all of these stories. 
And then he goes on to tell us about Moses and the Israelites and the Exodus and Rahab, and he's barely out of the Pentateuch. And then he realizes that there are so many more examples of faith. He, he summarizes it, and then he says, what more shall I say? I mean, I could tell you about the judges, like Gideon, like Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah. I could tell you about the kings, like David. I could tell you about the prophets, like Samuel. And all of these individuals who, through faith, conquered kingdoms and accomplished mighty deeds. But time will not permit. So he summarizes instead what faith can do, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. His purpose is to encourage and build up our faith by saying, look what God has done through these men and women who walked by faith, who trusted God in the circumstances of their life. He's saying they faced trials and they triumphed, and you can too. They faced danger, persecution, and imprisonment, and they triumphed, you can too. They faced difficulties in their life and won great victories and saw great miracles. They even faced death with courage and hope, and you can too. Hold on to God and you will be surprised at what faith can do. And that's what I'd like us to look at this morning. That's where we're going to begin. Number one, he tells us that faith is surprising in what it can do. And again, if you look at verses 29 and 30, and then we'll pick up a little bit farther in that, he begins with the faith of the Exodus generation. Now, when you think about the Exodus generation, verse 29, the people whom God led out of Egypt into the wilderness and then toward the promised land, we don't exactly associate them with being people of faith. I mean, we, we remember more probably the stories of how they grumbled and complained and dragged their feet each step of the way, it seemed like, as they were going along. And yet, here the writer of Scripture speaks positively of them when he says that by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. And if you think about that story, when they came to the Red Sea, this barrier, and they were trapped by the Egyptian army behind them and the sea before them, you remember what Moses did. He told them to stand firm, and they would see the miracle that God was about to perform. And Moses raised his arms and called on the Lord, and the Lord parted the Red Sea so that the water stood up on either side of them, a wall of water. And the point that the writer of Scripture is making here in Hebrews is that it took more than courage to walk between that water on dry ground. It took faith. Because the Egyptian army tried to follow, they had courage going into that, trying to follow them, but it was not united with faith, and they perished. The results for the Egyptian army were deadly as the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea and drowned, but the Israelites came through unharmed. He talks also about the faith of the generation that entered the promised land, and we see that in verse 30, that by faith the walls of Jericho fell. 
And you can think of their circumstances facing this great walled city that stood before them as they were about to enter this new land. A land where previously they had heard there were giants living in the land. A, a land of strong and mighty people. And now they were about to enter that land and to conquer it. It would require faith. What is surprising here to me is that there's no mention made of Joshua in this story. But so often, God raises up an individual who will be that leader who can rally a whole nation or a whole people. And it takes that sometimes. It takes one person who will step forward and say, we can do this by the power of God if we will trust him. Let's go. And they lead that charge. And Joshua was that man. In Joshua chapter 5, we're told that the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and then they camped that first night at Gilgal. It was their first day in the promised land, and you may remember that in that first day in the promised land, the manna that God had provided all their time in the wilderness ceased. And God would now feed them from the bounty of that new land. The crossing of the Jordan was itself a miracle. I mean, it was flood season. The Jordan is very swift in the area where they were going to cross. But God parted the waters for them. When the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant and their feet touched the edge of the water, the waters were cut off and flowed downstream and they were able to cross this Jordan River. It was a miracle just like what God had done for Moses and Israel at the Red Sea. But the battle was only beginning. And there, looming before them, were the great walls of the city of Jericho. They had never seen a city like this before, let alone know how they were supposed to conquer it. And there they were, they were camped, and they were looking at this city, wondering what they were going to do. And that night, Joshua went out for a walk. And he came near to Jericho, and he saw another man standing in front of him, a man standing with his sword drawn. And Joshua did not run. Joshua probably drew his own sword as he called out to this man, and he asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Joshua was ready for the battle. And what came was this reply, where the man speaking to him said, neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And he replied, the commander of the Lord's army said, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua had met the commander of the Lord of hosts, the angel of the Lord who had come to speak with him. And it's interesting, when he was asked, are you for us or for our enemies, that the reply was neither. You see, the question isn't whose side God is on, as much as the question is, are we on the Lord's side? Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, was asked that question. He was asked whether he thought that God was on the side of the North or the side of the South in this battle. And Abraham Lincoln, just like this, replied, I do not know whether the Lord is on the side of the North or the South, 
what I am concerned about is that we are on the Lord's side, that we are fighting his battles. In Joshua chapter 6, God gave them their battle plan. He told them that here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. And then blow the trumpets and give a loud shout and the walls will come tumbling down. And I can imagine when Joshua told that to the people who are waiting there, wondering what their battle plan is going to be, that there were some surprised looks there. Like, that's it? You're telling us that this is what the battle plan is going to be? I mean, that and what else? I mean, it, it may have even sounded foolish to some to think that this is what we're going to do. Nobody's building a ramp. Nobody's building a siege work, any of those kind of things. And when they begin to march around that city, I'm sure the people inside the walls of Jericho also wondered, what are they doing out there? Marching around once, stopping, camping again, marching around again, stopping, camping again. What is going on? Will this accomplish anything? Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever wonder sometimes what God is doing or if the things you are doing are making any difference? You know, I think sometimes we can feel like that with prayer. In about a month, we are going to be asked to join in praying for our nation once again in the National Day of Prayer. And sometimes people can come to that and think, you know, we've been praying a long time and look at what's happening to our country. It just seems like it's still going away. Does anything happen when we pray? Does this event or this activity mean anything at all? It does when we come in faith. Do we believe that God is powerful? And are we praying for our nation in faith, trusting that God has his hand and that all things work according to his will? And are we willing to leave the timing in God's hands? And I think that is the hardest thing, is that we want immediate answers to our prayers, and they don't always come immediately. But God is at work in the circumstances in our world, and no one comes to power without his approval, without his letting that happen. And I think that's where sometimes we wonder, God, are you giving us what we deserve at this point in our history or what is going on here? But we cry out to God for justice, for mercy, for his grace to work and turn hearts to him. And we know that we are praying to a God who uses all things for good in the lives of those who trust him. And so even when we do not understand the plan, just like the Israelites did not fully understand what God was about to do, we trust him. And we obey and we come together in faith and repentance and we pray for our land. They proved their faith by their obedience. And why did God do it this way? Well, I think God did it this way so that he would get the glory. That he would be the one who would be exalted. And everybody would know that the walls had come down not by some human strength or military might or some great plan that they had. But it was done by the hand of God. Again, they proved their faith by obedience, by walking around the city. 
And when they cried out, God did his part, and the walls broke down. Faith is surprising in what it can do because faith is the way that God has chosen chosen to work. God responds to obedient faith. When you look again at verses 33 to 35, for example, and you hear what these individuals did by faith, I mean, they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, or ruled wisely is what that means. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouth of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword. Weakness turned to strength, became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. I mean, when you go through this list of all the things that were done by faith, um, you can fill in the stories. You can fill in the individuals of who that is. He's, he's just talking about individuals like Joshua and David who conquered kingdoms, or Solomon who ruled wisely, or uh, Daniel who shut the mouth of the lions, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who withstood the fiery flames. It was amazing what happened in their lives because they were willing to trust God. Awesome, incredible, outstanding. But when we continue to read that summary, we see that faith is also surprising in what it can't do. In verses 35 to 37, in the second half of that verse, it said that others were tortured, refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. Still others were chained, put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And you read that list and you realize that faith can't guarantee that you and I will not suffer or be tortured or be killed. That faith can't guarantee that you and I will be rich and prosperous, contrary to a prosperity gospel. I mean, you read the list here and you see that some of these individuals were destitute, quite poor, and suffered great hardship. Faith doesn't mean that you will always be healthy and life will be easy. I mean, look at this list of individuals and think also of the Apostle Paul and what he went through for the sake of the gospel and the other apostles. But faith does guarantee this, that when we walk by faith with Jesus, he always leads us in triumph. Always. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Paul said we are captives of the Lord and everywhere we go there is a fragrance, the fragrant aroma of Christ. And to some it is the smell of death and to others it is the smell of life. And I know when we read this chapter, we'd rather be in the first half of those individuals who did all of these great things and saw these awesome deeds done rather than the second half of those that suffered and were tortured and imprisoned and died. But that's not in our hands. That's in God's hands to decide. 
You know, in John chapter 21, when Jesus reinstated Peter after his denial, and he told Peter what he wanted him to do, he also told Peter the kind of death by which he would die. That the day would be come when his hands would be bound and he would be led where he would not want to go. Peter, we know, died by crucifixion by the Romans. And as we are told, he said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. And they crucified him upside down. And Peter, on that occasion, in John 21, when Jesus had told him what was going to happen in his life, looked at his friend John, and he said, what about him? And Jesus replied and said, what is that to you? You follow me. God's plan is different for all of us in the circumstances that he takes us through in this journey of life. And our part is to follow him wherever he may lead. Secondly, faith is surprising in where it turns up. We see that in verse 31 as an example. When he tells us that by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Rahab lived in the city of Jericho, and she was a Canaanite. Even worse, here in this circumstance, she was a prostitute. Now, how did she make the list of the heroes of faith? It is an amazing story, and I am glad that she is there. Some have tried to whitewash this scenario and say things like she was just an innkeeper, and that she was a virgin. I mean, that has been said by some uh, who have tried to make this uh, seem a little bit better than the way it looks. But the text calls her a harlot, calls her a prostitute. And she was. But before the fall of Jericho, Joshua had sent two spies into the land to scout it out, and especially the city of Jericho. And these two men were trying to not call attention to themselves. And so when they entered Jericho and they looked around, they ended up at Rahab's inn, if you will. And the men aroused suspicion. The king of Jericho heard about them and he sent men to arrest them. But Rahab, in an act of faith, hid them on the roof and then after the danger had passed, let them escape from the city and told them the route that they should go to return. When they asked her why she was doing this, she made her confession of faith. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, she said, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And what had happened there is that there were people who probably had come to her uh, in again and who had stayed there who had heard these stories of what God was doing through the people of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. And these great cities that had been taken, these great peoples that had been conquered there on the other side. And so when they came, they were telling these accounts of what the God of Israel was doing. And she came to believe that Israel's God was the one true God. It was amazing. We never know where faith may turn up. You know, when you go through Scripture, you understand that Abraham's father was an idolater and God called Abraham out of idolatry. Gideon's father was a Baal worshiper. 
Barak was a reluctant leader. It was only when Deborah encouraged him to be strong that he took a step of faith and trusted God. Samson was enticed by Delilah. Jephthah made a foolish vow and then he kept it. And you can go on and on through these individuals. You go into the New Testament, you see the same thing. I mean, it is surprising where faith may turn up. You read about Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors were despised by Israel. You read about Simon, the zealot, the political zealot who wanted to overthrow Rome. You read about Cornelius, the centurion. He's working for the bad guys. I mean, he's on the other side. And all of these individuals came to faith. And what's amazing about Rahab is she would marry a man named Simone, the father of Boaz, and she would become part of the line of Christ. She's there in that line of the Messiah. That's grace. That is just amazing. You know, John Calvin wrote on this passage, he said, in every saint there is something, there is always to be found something reprehensible. And nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. There is no reason, therefore, why the fault from which we labor should break us or discourage us, provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? And every saint, there are still flaws. There are still things that God is working on in our life. You see that in the Scripture. I mean, there are very few individuals presented in Scripture where we don't see, you know, their warts and their flaws and all the stuff that they did wrong to. There's a few. There are individuals like Daniel, uh, whom there's nothing uh, negative that is said about him and his character and faith. There's an individual like Mary, the mother of Jesus, where there is nothing said of her that was um, a flaw, say, in her character. I mean, there are individuals like that, but there are others, like Moses, who was a murderer, like Abraham, who, you know, when he's down there with Pharaoh in Egypt, you know, tells his wife to say, you're my sister, so they don't kill me and take you. I mean, there are all these kind of different scenarios that come up where you shake your head and you go, what was going on there, or what were they thinking? And so this should encourage us. It's not an excuse, though, to say, well, I guess that means I can have this character flaw in my life and not have to work on it. No, God wants us to become more and more like Christ in all areas. But even though our faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it can still be approved by God, and God can use us right where we are, provided we continue to walk with him. Sometimes the person we think is least likely to come to faith is the person that God chooses. And that's encouraging again because it means that God can use you and me. And then thirdly, faith is surprising in its response, both from the world and from God. And we see that in verses 36 to the end. Now, I know that 1 Peter 4 says that we shouldn't be surprised by the fiery ordeals that come among us, as though some strange thing were happening to us. Peter doesn't want them to be surprised by persecution or opposition or trials in this life. And I know that. 
In other words, don't be surprised by the opposition you may face. Uh, Jesus said, if the world hates you, it's because it hated me first. But I got to admit that there are times when I am surprised by how strongly the world hates God and his people. I think of that with anti-Semitism, for example. A couple weeks ago, I read the book Kristallnacht. And Kristallnacht was the night, two nights actually, November 9th and 10th, 1938, when the persecution of the Jews broke out in Germany and Poland and other places in Eastern Europe. And it was on that first night that the Germans had determined that they were going to initiate this wave that was going to round up the Jews and begin to deport them to the concentration camps where they would be held and killed. In Kristallnacht, it was called that, the night of broken glass. And it was like free reign was given to all the thugs in the city to just go out and smash the businesses of the Jews and loot their property and smash their homes and round them out and beat them and arrest them and take them away. And this wave broke out. I mean, it was unbelievable what happened in those two nights. And you just kind of wonder what was there and why and what was behind all of this that it would be so strong, so evil, so violent right away. It just doesn't make sense. And I don't understand the persecution of Christians today either in many parts of the world. Why is it that people hate believers in Christ who are trying to do good who are trying to help others in our world, who are involved in ministries of compassion and service and work to bring good to other people, and yet they are arrested and beaten and rounded up and killed. It does not make any sense at all apart from a spiritual explanation that Satan is behind all of it and even the world doesn't fully understand. There's a new book out called I Am In. It comes from the voice of the martyrs ministry, and I have not read it yet, but I know what it's about, and perhaps you do too. But this particular letter N, in Arabic, there's this symbol for the letter N. And in recent years, that is a symbol that has been painted on the homes of Christians in northern Iraq. And they are identified as believers in Christ, and they've either had to flee for their lives or they've been rounded up and killed by radical Muslims like ISIS, who are out to destroy and kill Christians and destroy churches. And so here they are being branded just like the Jews were during World War II when they were forced to wear a certain clothing or forced to wear a letter that identified them as a Jew. Christians are being rounded up, persecuted, and killed simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But what does God say about these individuals? What does he tell us in this passage? He tells us, that the world was not worthy of them. That's quite a statement. They are men and women of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. 
but they were all commended for their faith. Just like Abraham, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And when these saints died, they were still waiting the promises. It's an interesting statement here that none of them received what had been promised in full. And the reason for that was that they had died before Jesus came. Because it is in Christ that all of the promises come to fruition. It's in Jesus Christ and what God is going to do through him that all of it will be brought to completion. And we too are waiting for that day when our Lord will return and he will establish his kingdom upon this earth and he will vanquish his foes. And that day will come when he will make all things new. You know, when I read these stories of faith, they are just incredible examples of men and women who walk with God and God used in powerful ways. And does it stir your heart? I mean, do you hear these stories and think, God, I want to trust you. I want to be like that too. I want to walk with you in that way. You know, I've been to visit some of the halls of fame in the United States. I've been to the Basketball Hall of Fame where Gail and I lived for several years in Springfield, Massachusetts, and that's an inner sea museum to visit. I've been to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, where you can see these heroes in baseball that are there and read about their exploits. But I want to tell you that I can't wait to see God's Hall of Fame in heaven and to hear those stories of faith of what these men and women did through the years and how God used them in a powerful way. I love how Randy Alcorn pictures it in his book, Safely Home, when he pictures it as though there's this great wall and you can see these pictures and a little story of all these saints that have gone before us. And all you have to do is touch on that little screen and out pops a, you know, a video image of what happened in their life and you can hear the stories of how they triumphed, how they walked with God, how they trusted him through the trials of their life. So what's the message for us in a text like this? It is to hold on to Jesus and trust him. To trust him with our health, with our work, with our finances, with our family, with our future. It's to walk with Christ and he will surprise you. And it is to walk with Christ and he will lead you in victory always. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word and thank you for this great chapter in the Bible that is just so encouraging to see what you can do when men and women will step out in faith and trust you. Lord, you know our generation. You know the circumstances that we face and I pray, Father, that you would use us by our life and by our death to be a witness for you that others might know that Jesus is real that his word is true, and that it is through Christ that we live and breathe. We pray in his name. Amen.